0: Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that anytime you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Sorry, I had to do that <laughs> Nice talking to you uh, it's good to see everybody here today I do appreciate your prayers this week uh, those that weren't here last week maybe not know may, may not know what I'm playing at there but uh, definitely been a struggle this week in getting my voice uh, back online uh, but thank God it is online I, I trust enough uh, to make it through. Uh, This sermon today and also a very, very happy uh, and exciting wedding this afternoon. Uh, Nick and Leah, please keep them in your prayers. Um, This morning, as I have announced before, I'm talking about the subject that you see on the screen, wars and rumors of wars. Appreciate, Brother Luis the prayer today, Uh, praying for the situation in Ukraine as well as in Israel slash Palestine. And of course, there are some other armed conflicts taking place in the world also. And every time we turn on the news these days, it appears that there's some kind of war going on somewhere between two parties of people. And so lines like wars and rumors of wars that we read about in important Bible prophecies then come to so many Christians' minds. And we wonder, is the end of the world at hand? Is Jesus going to, in fact, come back very soon in the sense of the sequence of time? Might it be today, tomorrow, Uh, sometime in this present period of time. And that's a question that I'm going to talk about this morning. But before I do, first of all, I just want to very briefly uh, touch on the fact that everything that is especially going on in what many people call the Holy Land, the Promised Land, uh, the land historically of Israel, uh, also called Palestine, Uh, this is uh, an ancient, ancient conflict that continues to go on for generation after generation primarily between the descendants of Abraham, especially Isaac, that is the Jews, and Ishmael. And the Arabic people trace their ancestry uh, through Ishmael to Abraham. And there's been a lot of jealousy between the two ethnic groups of people over the years because of uh, competing religious claims mainly. And so today with the conflict that is going on in Israel, the rest of the world is being divided by those who are calling the rest of the world to take sides. Is it Israel or is it Palestine? Should we call that land Israel or should we call it Palestine? And the deeper question behind that is this one. Does Israel, the nation, have a right to exist? Well, there's a lot of things I can say about that, but in the amount of time I've got, I'm going to answer it very simply. And I'm not going to take a political position on what's going on, but I just simply want... Uh, For us to understand something from a common sense and a biblically moral point of view first of all there is a saying that is being um, shouted out as sort of a a, of a marching cry uh, by many folks in the world today primarily folks on the left now when i say that i want everybody to understand you all that are members here know that i don't tell you to be a democrat i don't tell you to be a republican i'm not telling you who to vote for vote for jesus that's who you need to vote for and whoever it is that you go to the polling booth that you think is going to best support the cause of Christ, that's who you should vote for. All right? That's into discussion as far as that is concerned. When I say the folks that are saying this are primarily on the left, it's because they are. Now there are folks on the extreme left that are people that wish to use violence in order to bring about uh, the reality of their political views that are extreme. There are folks on the right who are right-wing extremists, who are willing to use violence and disruption and cause problems in order to bring about their agenda. And so when I say that the folks saying this particular thing on the left are on the left, they are, and I'm not saying left-wing extremists are any worse than right-wing extremists. So I hope everybody can understand that, and don't uh, mistake me for saying something I'm not saying. But here is the statement, Liberate Palestine from the river to the sea. I've heard it at least four times in the last couple of weeks, and seen it on social media and situations like that. Now as Christians, I want you to understand that regardless of what you think about the Palestinian claims on the land, this particular statement is a statement of intended genocide, enslavement, and of the destruction of the nation of Israel altogether. That's what that statement means. And, and I especially want to say this to young people in the crowd because you are especially prone to being influenced by folks in the media especially liberal elites in the education field who are, in fact, selling you a bill of goods, who are telling you lies about the political situation in our world today because of an agenda. And so I want you to understand what that means. When you hear someone say, liberate Palestine from the river to the sea, it means they're saying that Israel has no right to exist as a nation at all. And that any and everything ought to be done to eliminate Israel from being a nation upon this earth. That's what's being said. Do not be deceived. And so the question underlying this is does the present day nation of Israel have a right to exist? Now I was up late last night because the cutting floor needed to have some things stacked on it. There are lots of things that need to really be said. I could, spe- I could do a six week series on this subject. But we're just going to focus on first of all. Well, let's just look at uh, some things that were said in the 20th century before Christ. The 20th century before Christ. The call of Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. Later in the chapter, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Genesis 13, verse 14, God again speaks to Abraham, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Now one of the things that we're going to spend a few minutes talking about today is the reality of dual fulfillment prophecy throughout the Bible. And I'll explain more what I mean by that in just a moment. But right now, I just want to let you know that there are two things that this meant. One was the original, limited, and local fulfillment of this prophecy that God made to Abraham. The other is the uh, complete fulfillment of this prophecy that God made to Abraham, the permanent and long-term, final fulfillment of this prophecy. The short-term fulfillment is that God literally would give the land of Israel to the people of Israel, specifically to the child promised to Abraham, which is Isaac, through his descendants should his offspring, his seed be called. Again, the words of God. And so the original fulfillment of this prophecy was that God led the descendants of Isaac through Jacob, renamed Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel were given the land of Israel And this took place about 400 years after this prophecy was given, all right? And so the Ishmaelites, later the Arabs, are in fact the descendants of Abraham. But God was very clear to Abraham that it is through Isaac that his descendants would be named. And so the land was given by God to the people of Israel as a primary fulfillment of this passage. There is no people group on earth with a more ancient claim to that stretch of land than the Jews. There is no ethnic group on earth with a more ancient claim to that land than the Jews. And every Christian should know it. Now that does not mean that you should then be on the side of Israel in any armed conflict that takes place there. It doesn't mean that Israelites have always done justly or done rightly. It also does not mean that Palestinians don't have a right to live in that land. These are all complex questions that are more than we're going to have time to answer in detail today. But I do want you to understand that if you do a study of Galatians chapter 3, you will realize that God had something bigger and more eternal and sweeping in mind when he made these promises to Abraham. And scripture identifies the offspring of Jesus in, I'm sorry, the offspring of Abraham in singular terms. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. Abraham. And according to the Bible, neither Jews nor Palestines own that land. Jesus does. It's the land of Jesus. It belongs to Jesus. And as long as the gospel is not reigning in that land, that land is not being loyal to its owner. That's the Christian position, brothers and sisters. Do not get caught up in the foolish wars that are going on politically about the situation. Now I said nobody has a more ancient claim. It's because the only people group in history with a claim to the land that precedes the Israel, that precedes Israel, is the Canaanites. And the Canaanites were dispossessed by God and long ago ceased to exist because of their abominable idolatrous practices. You can see there a picture of a child being offered in sacrifice to the false god Moab. That was a a canaanite practice and was one of the reasons why that god judged them and removed them from the land and so again does the present day nation of israel have a right to exist yes we could talk about how muslims lost control of that geographic piece of land and that was uh, settled finally in world war one I. I won't go into great detail except to say that the last muslims to control the land of israel slash palestine was the ottoman empire the Ottoman Empire sided with the central powers in World War I, that is Germany, Austria, Hungary, etc., who waged unjust war for the purpose of claiming land and resources and were then justly defeated by the Allied powers. Not only is that the case, but during World War I, the Ottoman Empire, under the leadership of the so-called Young Turks, uh, performed the, uh, the Armenian Genocide in which the Armenian population was genocided and exiled, particularly from the land of Turkey, but also from regions of the Levant. And so why did the Muslims lose control? Because they waged an unjust war and they lost. Because of war crimes in World War I and they lost. You've heard the saying all of your life, to the victor go the spoils. When a war is waged justly, And when the just party is victorious, the just party has the legal right to partition the land, to form the government, and to bring about whatever repercussions are deemed necessary against the guilty party, that is the party that waged war unjustly. That is a matter of law that is as old as the race and absolutely has biblical support. The Muslims lost control of Palestine righteously. And in the process of that being handled by the international governments, by the League of Nations, by uh, the, the combined efforts of the victorious powers in World War I, the control of the land fell to Britain and through britain's mediation a land was set aside a government was set aside for the jews in order to have a safe haven in the world and that's not to say that there were no jews there before and they just kicked a bunch of palestinians out and moved the jews in that's not what happened either but i'm just letting you know brothers and sisters it's what's being said in the news about the source of the conflict there is absolutely full of lies and falsehood it is not an accurate depiction of what has taken place there historically. So, does the nation of Israel have a right to exist? Yes. Unless and until the Lord rules otherwise, the nation of Israel has as solid international legal grounds to exist as any other nation on the globe. And that means that Israel has a right to defend itself from its enemies. Now, when I say that, that does not mean that that, that the people of Palestine don't have a right to live there either. I'm talking about one side of the issue that is being challenged in the media today. I'm saying a two state solution would be grand. A four state solution, it doesn't matter. The point is, as Christians, uh, we're, we're dealing with this question must Christians support Israel or Palestine? And the answer to that question is yes. And it's also no. Do Christians support Israel? Well, yeah, yeah, we support Israel. Do we support Palestine? Yeah, we support Palestine too. Do Christians support Israel? No, we don't support Israel. Do Christians support Palestine? No, we don't support Palestine either. Now, I'm not talking out of both sides of my mouth, Uh, Michael. I'm not talking out of both sides of my mouth, brother. We talked about that other. Uh, But the issue is this. The problem in the Promised Land is that many of its inhabitants, both Jews and Gentiles, do not respect its rightful king. Are you listening? As a result, they fail to walk in his ways. And so they suffer unnecessarily. All the strife there is unnecessary. All of it, brothers and sisters, is rooted in the fact that both Jews and Gentiles there largely do not honor Christ as king, and therefore they do not follow his word, his will, and his way. The fights that are taking place there are not because of Jews and Arabs, not because of Isaac and Ishmael. The problem is because there are sinners in that land that do not give their loyalty to Jesus. That's the problem with the promised land, and it's the only one. And brothers and sisters, that means that there is no hope there for the people that are, that are wrapped up in Judaism or in the Muslim religion. There's no hope in Judaism without Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah of Judaism. And until Jews come to believe in Christ, there is no salvation for them. And Muslims are following what is arguably the greatest of all false prophets, Muhammad himself, the false prophet of all false prophets. And there is no salvation in that religion. So, what is our concern? I'm pro Israel because I want our missionaries, our preachers, to be there preaching their Messiah to those people. That's how I'm pro Israel. I'm pro Palestine because I want our missionaries, I want gospel preachers preaching the gospel to those people that have been deceived by Islam. That's how I'm pro Israel, and that's how I'm pro Palestine. Brothers and sisters, whatever position that you may think the United States ought to take, I'm not talking about the United States. You can debate that until Christ comes again I'm talking about the church what is our position and our response that's far more important brothers and sisters than what the civil nations do and so there is our first question fundamentally it is not a missile problem it is a master problem that is fundamentally the issue of the promised land and fixing that problem that is teaching both Israel and and Palestine who the master is Jesus our Lord that's the church's only mission there So we come to our second and most important question today. But do the present conflicts signal the end that the end of the world is upon us? Now in order to answer that question, I want us to look at what is called the Olivet Discourse. Now, the Olivet Discourse is one of the sermons of Jesus, in a sense. It was more of a conversation, but a sermon of Jesus, in a sense. And he he gave this to the disciples in answer to their questions on the Mount of Olives, thus uh, to the east of Jerusalem. Thus, the Olivet Discourse is what this is called. And so, we're we're not going to read all of Matthew 24 and 25 today for the sake of time. But I do want us to focus on the first 14 verses of Matthew 24. So, if you've got your Bibles, please open there with me. I'll be reading from the New King James Translation. Now, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. This is in Jerusalem now. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, Not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginning of sorrows or birth pangs, some versions say. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Now, that's a lot. And it's powerful. And it's actually very clear. Now I will say that there is nothing greatly difficult about this text, but it is greatly difficult for the new Bible student. So if you if you struggle with the Olivet discourse or any of these types of prophecies in the Bible, you're in good company. Uh, So do most of your brethren. Now, now through diligent study, you can come to understand how Bible prophecy works, and, and thus pieces will fall into place, and you'll be able to recognize patterns, and thus be able to interpret them appropriately. But the first time, as a believer, you come to passages like this, and you begin to wrestle with them, you're going to get it wrong. You're going to get it wrong. But it's not because it's deceptive. It's not because it's misleading. It's just because it takes at least a practical knowledge of all the 66 books in order to identify the way that God has prophesied, the way that he's spoken through the prophets over the years so that we can then interpret the passage. There is a repeated pattern in biblical prophecy, and I mentioned this just a moment ago, and that is that in most biblical prophecies, at least all of the major ones, There is an initial fulfillment, a step one, initial, limited, local fulfillment, which we often in teaching call a type. And then in answer to that original fulfillment of the prophecy, there is step two, which is the universal, unlimited, final fulfillment of a prophecy. And in teaching, we call that the antitype or the answer to the type. Now, in order to understand Bible prophecy, you've absolutely got to remember that there is type and anti-type. There is symbol, and there is answer to the symbol. There's the symbol, and there's what the symbol symbolizes. There is a microcosm of a thing that God uses in the original fulfillment of a prophecy to teach His people what they ought to be expecting and looking for, and then there is the huge sweeping universal fulfillment of it that says, this is what that was pointing to. Now, I hope all of that makes sense, and if you can understand that, that you can grasp the way, at least an initial level, that Bible prophecy works. So let's talk a little more detail about type and antitype. In the biblical sense, a type refers to a person, event, object, or concept, mainly in the Old Testament, that foreshadows or prefigures a corresponding person, event, object, or concept, mainly in the New Testament. Types are used in the Bible to illustrate or symbolize something that will be fulfilled or realized later in the timeline of history. The corresponding fulfillment or realization in the New Testament is known as the antitype. For example, in Christian theology, Adam is a type of Christ. Adam's disobedience in the Garden of Eden is a foreshadowing of Christ's obedience and sacrifice for humanity's sins. In this case, Adam is the type and Christ is the antitype. Types and antitypes are used to demonstrate continuity and fulfillment in the biblical narrative and to emphasize how the Old Testament and New Testament are connected through God's plan of salvation. Now, it's at this point that I'm going to say, y'all ought to listen to this lesson twice. Okay? Lord willing, it'll be recorded on social media. Go back this afternoon and listen to it again. Listen to it during the commute this week. And I promise you, none of this will be as difficult as it may seem the first time you're listening to it. A few examples. Genesis 6 and 1 Peter 3. Comparison of type and anti-type. You have the flood of water in Genesis uh, chapter 6. And you have the flood of fire that will destroy this present world in, uh, in, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and 2 Peter chapter 3. You have also the ark and baptism that are uh, type and anti-type in 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21. Then you have Isaiah 7, verses 14 through 17, the prophecy of the virgin birth. A lot of people don't realize that there was a limited local fulfillment of that. You read about right there in that context of Isaiah chapter 7. But we learn from Matthew chapter 1 that the ultimate fulfillment is in the actual miraculous virgin birth of Christ himself. Hosea 11, 1, out of Egypt, I called my son. A prophecy that when it was originally given by the prophet Hosea obviously referred to the nation of Israel, the multiplicity of the descendants of Abraham. But when we encounter it again in Matthew chapter 2, we find that the antitype of that prophecy, its ultimate and universal fulfillment is in Christ himself who symbolically then was exiled to Egypt and was once again free to the death of Herod to come back uh, into the promised land. And so we see some examples then of this way that the Bible teaches us through prophecy, and so now back to Christ's Olivet discourse, verses one and two just introduce the scene: the people, uh, uh, Jesus, and his disciples have left. Jerusalem they pass by the temple the disciples have said look how awesome the temple is I'm paraphrasing and they go outside of the temple to the Mount of Olives on the east and they go up the slopes and now they're looking toward the west toward the city of Jerusalem and they can see the gold and the pure white of the stones of the temple gleaming in the sunset and Jesus then begins to teach them something that they were not at that moment equipped to understand And the nature of their muddy question, verse 3, identifies the fact that they could not understand what they were asking because they were so attached to the temple, and maybe rightly so, but they were so attached to the temple's position at the center of Israel's life with God that they could not conceive of God allowing that temple to be destroyed before the end of time. And so when Jesus said, I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another, they're thinking, he's talking about the end of this world. He's got to be, because that temple won't be destroyed before then. And so they ask these three questions. When will these things be? That is, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem. When will these things be? And a second question. It's all the same question to them, though, understand. What will be the sign of your coming? Because they say, well... You know, I mean, the temple's not going to be destroyed if Christ is not coming. And number three, what will be the sign of the end of the age and of the world? Now, the disciples at this period of time are not equipped to realize that these are distinct events that are going to be separated by thousands of years. That's called the mountaintops of prophecy. And I've talked about that in another sermon. It's the way if you were to stand at Stone Mountain in Georgia and theoretically look north, northeast up the Appalachian Mountains, you'd just see a bunch of peaks overlapping each other going on forever and you can't tell how much distance is between those two peaks but if you get over here to middle tennessee and you actually could see far enough and you look along the length of the appalachian mountains you can see that it's 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 hill after mountain after peak after ridge after other going on as far as the eye can see and so oftentimes when prophecies are first given in scripture folks see them in the sense of the mountaintops they see this first fulfillment the second fulfillment the third fulfillment stretching off through history But they can't see the gaps between those mountaintops. Does that make sense? I hope so. All right? But now that we have the completed canon of Scripture, all 66 books, it's like we get to go to the side of the mountain range. We get to see it stretched out so that we can tell that these all events were not intended to happen at the same time, that there were going to be long sequences of time spaced between them. All right? And so that's what's going on in this context. So... I said, hold on, I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 3, the muddy question. But verses 3 through 14 are an overview of what verses 15 through 51 develop in greater detail. Right? We don't have time today for verses 15 through 51. So I'm focusing on verses 3 through 14, which give us the overview. They give us the outline that verses 15 through 51 develop in greater detail. So let's just look at, at what 15 through 51 do. We have the destruction of Jerusalem in verses 15 through 28. We have, once again, Judgment Day being considered in verses 29 through 31. We're back to the destruction of Jerusalem in verses 32 through 35. And we're back to the end of this world, Judgment Day, in verses 36 through 51. Jesus gave this lesson in proper Hebrew parallelism. And, of course, you'll find that in Jesus' teaching and the apostles' teaching throughout the New Testament. And that's what he does. So Jesus gives this sort of overview. He gives the pattern in verses 3 through 14, the symbols that are going to be fulfilled in the events, right? And then in verses 15 through the end of the chapter, he says, destruction of Jerusalem and temple, judgment day. Destruction of Jerusalem and temple, judgment day. Now, one of the reasons why Jesus does this, and it's not terribly clear about which event he's talking about, and in fact, if you look at the parallels of this passage in the books of Mark and Luke, you will find that it's even less sequentially clear than it is in Matthew. We're thankful for Matthew for giving us a little more, uh, I guess, uh, effective transition statements that help us realize that you know, which of the particular fulfillments of this prophecy he's talking about. But the reason why, brothers and sisters, that this passage is difficult for so many is because Jesus doesn't particularly care how well we can thread the needle to split the two events up because of the reality of types and antitypes the destruction of jerusalem and herod's temple was a type of which the second coming of christ is the antitype and every event that led up to the destruction of jerusalem in fulfilling this prophecy was a little down payment, a little illustration of, a little symbol of, a little microcosm of what's going to happen universally on the big picture of the whole world when Christ comes back again. And so if I understand from this context what Jesus says about the destruction of Jerusalem and that temple, which occurred in A.D. 70, that part is fulfilled. The type has been fulfilled. It's established. It's there as a teaching tool. We can look back on it and see historically how this prophecy was initially fulfilled. And that enables us to look at the circumstances of our world today and understand how to apply this prophecy to what's going on and to recognize what's going to happen at the end of time as we know it. All right? But time is drawing short, so please pay attention and follow me as we talk about verses 4 through 14. This is the pattern after which the destruction of Jerusalem and the events leading to Judgment Day followed or will follow. The first is a type of the second. Here are the major points that Jesus wants us to understand. Previous to the destruction of Jerusalem, false Christs began to rise up and try to lead the disciples away after themselves. Before the end of time... False Christ will rise up and try to lead the disciples of Jesus away after themselves. In fact, brothers and sisters, they've already been doing that for a long time. That prophecy has been fulfilled in both cases. That prerequisite is handled. The end could come at any time. Number two, Jesus says you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Of course, leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and Herod's temple were the Jewish wars of the 60s A.D., And not only were those wars on people's minds, but conflicts between the Romans and the Scythians, Romans and the Gauls, Romans and the Britons. Everyone was talking about war in the news in ancient Rome all the time. And all of that, just as Christ had prophesied, let them know that the original fulfillment of this prophecy, the destruction of Jerusalem the temple, was at hand. It was at hand at some point. But nobody knew exactly when it was going to be. They just knew that these signs meant that it was coming that the time was getting closer. And brothers and sisters, the same thing is true today. it's not new that we're hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Brothers and sisters, the world has been through two world wars. World wars. And and so what's happened ever since the ending of World War II has been just child's play in compared to that. So when we look at what's going on in Ukraine or in uh, the, the Holy Land today, does that signal that the end could be coming soon yes of course it signals that the end could be coming soon but but it also signals that the end might yet be another hundred years away or more right but the fact that we are hearing of constant wars and rumors of wars is a fulfillment of this prophecy and it does teach christians that the end is drawing nearer that's how this prophecy works three natural disasters will continue to happen of course they do they always have They're going to continue till Christ comes again. And they're not just coincidences. Natural disasters are, well, they're a sign from God. Jesus says they're a sign in this prophecy. Now, they're not necessarily a sign of God's wrath against innocent individuals who happen to be in the path of a tornado. That's not true at all, right? But the reason why the world rebels against its rightful leaders, humanity. We represent God to this earth. Our first job was to be God's intermediaries, priests and kings, to rule over this world in the name of God and to bring it into order and peace and beauty and all of that. And so when, when our ancestor, when we, through our ancestor, rebelled against that mission from God, and all of creation was cursed by God and turned against us. And so the reason why that there are natural disasters is because just as humanity is in rebellion against God, so our world is in rebellion against us. And that's the prophetic meaning of these things. And so they teach us that all is not right, all is not well in this world. And in that sense, they do form a sign that Christ is coming again, and he is coming again. And we can read about these birth pangs in Romans 8, 18 through 25 if we had time, but we do not have time right now. So, brothers and sisters, don't fall for false Christs. Anybody says, hey, I'm Jesus, I've come back, it's a liar. When Jesus comes back again, everybody will know him. Every eye will see him. That's what John tells us in Revelation. When Christ comes back again, every eye will see him, even those that pierced him, even the Roman soldiers that nailed the nails into his hands and feet, their eyes will open up in the grave and they will see Jesus coming back. Jesus does not come back secretly. He does not come back silently. He does not come back invisibly. There are several other things that Jesus lists as major points. Persecution. Have you read your New Testament? Were our brothers and sisters persecuted before the Jewish wars? Absolutely. Are our brothers and sisters being persecuted today? Absolutely. And there is definitely a threat even in Western civilization of that persecution becoming worse. We should be praying about that. Apostasy. That is rebellion among the people of God. Christians turning away from the truth. Did that happen in in the decades leading up to the Jewish wars in the first century? Yes, it happened. Have you read your New Testament? The apostles are already dealing with false teachers by the mid-first century. Do we have false teachers in the world today? Do we have churches today that are being swept away from the Lord into outright rebellion? Churches that are ordaining, practicing homosexuals as their pastors. Do we have apostasy in our world today? Oh, yes, we have apostasy in our world today. There's also the endurance of the faithful. Did we have that in the ancient world? You better believe we did. Some of the most glorious cases of folks standing up for their faith in Christ, even if it cost them a painful death. Do we have brothers and sisters in Christ enduring all kinds of persecution and insults and hardship for the sake of the gospel today? Well, of course we do, brothers and sisters in Christ. The apostle Or Jesus rather says the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Before the destruction of Jerusalem, had the gospel been proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations? Yeah, Paul says that it has, at least in the sense that was required for for the prophecy to initially be fulfilled. What about today? I'll say something very briefly about that in just a moment. But the first fulfillment of the Olivet Discourse was the destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple by the Romans in A.D. 70 due to Israel's unbelief in the Messiah. See Colossians 1.23, the words of Paul. He says, then, previous to A.D. 70, the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. The prophecy was fulfilled. In our world today, there are still places where the gospel has not effectively gone. That's something that we ought to be highly concerned about as Christians. So the destruction of the whole world of the second coming of Christ, 2 Peter 3, is the final fulfillment of the Olivet Discourse. And all of the signs that Jesus has given us in the Olivet Discourse have been fulfilled repeatedly, except perhaps, I say, because I don't know how Jesus arranges people, but except perhaps the last one. That is the gospel of the kingdom being proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. It's a website called finishingthetask.com, and they maintain a UUPG list. And this UUPG list is a list of unengaged and unreached people groups in this world right now. This particular one was updated March 2023. People groups right now, brothers and sisters, who for all practical purposes have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now there is no civil nation on the planet that doesn't have some representation of the gospel being preached. But, with, but that's not what Jesus is talking about in the Great Commission when he says all nations. That's a translation of the Greek "ta ethne," which literally means every ethnic group. If you've got five different ethnic groups living in one civil nation, the gospel has got to come to all five of those ethnic groups, not just the nation, not just to the leading ethnic group of that nation. There are in fact over a thousand, there's some debate, but there's over a thousand people groups in our world today that number at least 500 people who have never heard the word of God in their own language, who've never had a capable gospel preacher come to their villages and preach the good news of Jesus. Still today, I think Jesus probably wants that done before he's going to return. But that is my interpretation and my understanding of things, and you've got a right to disagree if you want. If you can see those little gray uh, spots on the map, that's where those people groups presently live, all over the world. And you probably can't see the little dots, but there's a bunch of them, right? The final fulfillment of this prophecy will come when the gospel has been preached to every nation under heaven so that a remnant of them might be saved. That is the prophecy of the Olivet Discourse. And so, do the wars and rumors of wars in Israel mean the end of this world is imminently upon us? Yes and no. The wars and natural disasters and growing apostasy and wickedness of mankind globally signal the end is in fact drawing nearer. It seemingly remains, though, for a number of ethnic groups to thoroughly receive the gospel in order for a remnant of them to be saved. But like I said... I don't know how Jesus groups people together. In his estimation, everybody representatively may have had their chance. That's a legitimate uh, possibility. But brothers and sisters, if this last sign has not been fulfilled, then when it is complete, the end will come. But even so, will it be at that instant? Will it be 10 minutes later? Will it be a fortnight later, maybe a year? Maybe the Lord will decide to save even more people and let it go on for 100 years after that. All the prophecies have been or will be fulfilled. But that doesn't mean that anybody on God's green earth can pinpoint when that day is going to come. And that's why the whole of the teaching of Scripture tells God's people we need to always be living as ready. We need to be ready to hear the trumpet of God today and every single day And what we're supposed to be doing, brothers and sisters, in the meantime is what the Hebrew writer talks about in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, when he says to us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in the decades leading up to the destruction of the first temple as prophesied by Jesus... The apostles and the evangelists, our first century brethren, were going all over that world. And they were preaching the gospel to every creature. They were laying down their lives for it. They were losing their jobs for it. They were giving up and sacrificing possessions for it. And even as the temple was crumbling, souls were being baptized into Christ and eternally saved. It's not our job to put on white robes and go to the hilltop. And say Jesus is bound to be coming today. He's bound to be coming today. Because of that day and hour, no one knows. Not the angels. Not the Son. But the Father only. What we're called to be doing, brothers and sisters, is going to every mountaintop and shouting out the truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. He died for you through faith in him you can be redeemed from your sins through baptism into his death coming out of those waters into new life resurrected with Jesus there's the hope of a perfect world and a heavenly home in the age to come brothers and sisters because that is our mission we gotta be coming to church This passage tells us as we see the day drawing near, as we look at the signs of the times and we interpret them consistently with passages like the Olivet Discourse, we can clearly see the end is not getting farther away. The end is getting closer and so as it's doing so satan is ramping up his efforts to deceive the nation and that's why the hebrew writer tells us that as time gets older we come together more we come together more brothers and sisters we study together more we do not cancel services like so many churches are doing we do not say well everybody's busy today in the 21st century we'll just meet on sunday and that'll be enough that is a blatant disobedience of this passage Brothers and sisters, Satan is hot with fury because he knows his time is short. Read Revelation 12 and verse 22, which I'd talk about if I had time. Why do you think the world is going the direction it's going? Because Satan knows his time is short. Brothers and sisters, the fields are still until that trumpet sounds. White into harvest. and there's souls that need to be saved there's still a thousand people group on this planet that haven't heard the gospel. I don't know if the church down the road is going to do anything about it. Do you? Do you? So what this prophecy says to me, if I understand nothing else, is it's not my job to worry about when Christ comes again. It's my job to be ready. And when he comes... To be found actively working in his fields. That's our peace. That's our peace. And that's the application of this message as much as I'm going to give. I appreciate your time today, brothers and sisters. If you're subject to the gospel invitation, please respond to Christ before it's too late. Come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.